this morning, uh, we are in the middle of a series here at Rooftop called Chapter One, A Slow Walk Through the Creation of the World. And the series is about the first chapter of the Bible in which God creates the world in six days. Now, as I've explained, this chapter isn't really a modern scientific description of how things came to be. It's an introduction to the Bible in which we meet the Bible's main character, God. And we learn what it means to live in his good world. And in Genesis chapter 1, we're also introduced to words and ideas and phrases that recur repeatedly throughout the entire Bible. Uh, So we are reading and studying Genesis 1 very slowly. We're meditating on it. We're, We're chewing on it so that we don't miss anything knowing full well that we will miss a lot. Now, last week, we looked at the events that take place on the second half of day three of creation week, when God creates the plants and the trees. We learned that the trees probably aren't just trees, but they're a key metaphor in the Bible for people. And we learned that one of the keys to living as healthy people in God's good world is to learn what we can from the trees. Now this morning we're going to move on to day four on which God creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. And the question I want to talk with you about is actually the same question. That Simba and Pumbaa and Timon find themselves debating one night while lying in the grass of an African savanna. What are they? The stars in the sky, what are they? Those points of light in the sky, are they big balls of burning gas? Or are they fireflies that got stuck in the atmosphere? Or are they the kings of old looking down on us from above? In fact, this has long been a question that sky gazers have contemplated. Before we had access to telescopes and knowledge, the lights in the sky remained mysterious and unknowable, literally beyond our ability to comprehend them. Now, of course, we know what they are. We we know that the sun is a dense and ancient sphere of burning helium and hydrogen 92.4 miles away. We know that the moon is likely leftover material from the formation of our solar system. We know that the stars we see in the sky are objects like our sun or comets or wandering planets or even gigantic galaxies. But is that all they are? Giant balls of gas and rock, or is Simba onto something? Are they the kings of old, gazing down on us from above? That's what I want to talk about with you this morning as we continue in our series. I want to talk to you about what the stars are. Before we go any further, though, let's read our passage. It comes from chapter 1 of Genesis, verses 14 through 19. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light to the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. 
Lots to talk about. First, though, let's pray. Father, we need your, the light of your revelation to see what you would have to show us this morning. So we ask that you show it to us. Open our eyes so we can see. Open our ears so we can hear. Give me words that are good to speak. And anything that I say that is not good or confusing or unhelpful, wash it away. Make it go away. Pray these things in your name. Amen. So in many respects, uh, the events of day four, uh, they, they follow the rhythm of the other days. Uh, God, by his word, he orders the formation of something, lights in the sky. Uh, it happens, the lights are made, and then God steps back to admire his work, and he says that it is good. <clears throat> now, day four is a little different than what we've read on days one, two, and three, though. Uh, the author actually uses more words to describe day four than any other day so far. And mostly that's because he describes the purpose of what God does. So God creates lights in the vault of the sky, a greater light that we know is the sun during the day, a lesser light that we know is the moon during the night, and also the stars. But, the author says, he does so for a reason. Actually, he does so for three reasons. First, they were to separate the day from the night, to keep the day and night distinct. Remember, so much of God's creative activity during week one is dividing things, keeping things separated. The day from the night, the land from the sea, the waters above from the waters below. The lights are there to mark the difference between the day and the night. Also, they were to serve as signs to mark sacred times in days and years. So the lights in the sky were actually the religious calendar For ancient Hebrews, Jews, if you don't know this, they operate on a lunar calendar. Their holy days were based on where their moon was with respect to the sun and the stars. So the lights of the sky were kind of worship aids. From the earliest days, God wanted his people to be good worshipers. So he put lights in the sky as an alarm clock to remind them when to worship. Later in the Bible, we actually get more instructions. They actually get more instructions on when to worship. When the moon is like here, you do Yom Kippur. When the moon is like here, you do Rosh Hashanah. They didn't have Google Calendar back then. They had the sky. Finally, the lights were to give light to the earth, presumably so that people can see Get around without driving their car into trees. So many of the good things in our world require light. Plants require light for photosynthesis. People need vitamin D from the sun. So God gives us lights in the sky. That's why the description of day four here is a bit longer because the author describes what these lights are for. And we're glad that they do these things. I mean, we need light. Last week I told you that the best way to read the story of creation is as the building of a house, building of a temple in which God and people can dwell together. This is the goal of creation. And in order to have a house, what do you have to have? Walls, plumbing, and lights. In fact, you might find this interesting. Later in the Bible, God actually gives the Israelites instructions on how to actually build a house the tabernacle, the temple, the actual structure in which God and people would meet. 
Well, those places needed light too. So God very specifically tells them to put lamps in the temple. The Hebrew word for those lamps is ma'or. It's actually the root of the word from which we get another word, menorah. This is the word used, ma'or, here in Genesis. It doesn't necessarily mean light. It kind of means lamp. So God tells them, put lamps in the house so that we can see. Every house, every living space needs lamp. If we're going to live together in creation with God and each other, we need lamps in the sky, can lights, chandeliers, LEDs so that we can see. So on day four, God creates lights, lamps. Now that's pretty simple. And if we wanted to actually end there, we could. But I'm at the same point in this sermon that I was at last week when we were talking about trees and plants. Is that all that's going on? God puts lights in the sky. Thank you. But there's just something more. Which actually brings us back to our question from the Lion King. What are the lights really? That might seem like an odd question to you, but in the world of the Bible, it's not. You see, to the ancient readers of Scripture, the lights weren't just lights. There was something more. Maybe not kings of old, but not quite not that. Ancient Hebrews understood the lights to be something else. Ancient Hebrews understood the lights in the sky to be physical symbols that represented created heavenly beings. The lights weren't just light, but manifestations of divinely created beings that exist beyond our ability to perceive them. Angels, gods, divine servants. This is why people have always been fascinated with the zodiac and with constellations and shapes of the stars. Those shapes weren't just shapes, but representations of gods in another realm. This is why ancient people named planets after deities. Mercury, Venus, Jupiter, Mars, Saturn. Now, we don't think of the stars and planets like that. We don't think of the stars as anything other than big balls of gas. But remember, we're trying to read Genesis through the eyes of the author and the original audience, and that's what they thought the stars were, physical manifestations of heavenly beings. So from an ancient perspective, day four doesn't just recount the creation of the lamps in the sky so that we can see it represents the creation of the host of heaven, the angels and beings that exist beyond and are somehow represented in the lights. We actually see this constantly throughout the Bible where the stars and the moon and the sun symbolize divinely created angelic beings, all under the rule of God. Psalm 148, for example, says, Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights above. Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his heavenly host. Praise him sun and moon. Praise him all you shining stars. The lights above are the hosts of heaven. A host is an army. It's a choir created to praise and serve God. The prophet Jeremiah writes, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. Or as Job writes in chapter 38, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? On what were its footings set? 
or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. In Hebrew parallelism, this is sort of a parallel phrase, they say the same thing in slightly different ways. While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Same thing. In the Bible, as in the ancient world, lights weren't just lights, but a host of angels created by God. We even see this in Genesis chapter 1. We just read that God creates the lights to govern the day and the night. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. Now, the Hebrew word there for govern is memshalah. When we hear govern, we think dominate. The sun governs the sky and that it dominates the sky. The moon dominates the night. It's the brightest light there. But that's not what memshalah means. Memshalah means govern. Rule. Be in charge of. Just like God creates humans to govern the earth. He creates lights, heavenly beings, to govern the sky. Theologians actually refer to this as the divine council. The divine council is that group of angels and luminaries created to oversee God's work with God. In fact, you might find this interesting. Uh, so the modern nation of Israel has a government with a cabinet of leading officials. Kind of like we have here in the States, we have the president's cabinet. And do you know what they call their cabinet in Israel? The Memshalet, based on the same word of govern, Memshalah. This is the council of luminaries called to govern over the nation as the stars are called to govern over the cosmos. So we think that on day four, God just creates lights in the sky. We think that because, you know, we are modern people and we are so smart. And that's what we look up and see. An ancient reader of Genesis would have understood that on day four, God did something far more dramatic. He created a host of angelic beings to govern creation with him, a host represented somehow by the mysterious lights of the sky. That's what they thought. Now, here's an honest question are they right? Have we been getting the moon wrong? Is the sun some divinely created entity with agency and power? Or is this just another example of the slightly outdated worldview of the authors of Scripture? It's just, just them once again seeing things that aren't there. Basically, who's right? Pumbaa or Simba? For the record, nobody thinks Timon is right. <laughs> nobody thinks that there's actually fireflies in the sky. I don't mean to stereotype or anything, but meerkats are so dumb. <laughs> so who's right? Are they big balls of gas or kings of old? I think they're both right. You see, we know what the lights in the sky are on a physical level better than they did. We just do. We have telescopes and spectrometers. But the ancient readers of Scripture saw the universe very differently than we do. And in a different respect, they actually saw the universe more accurately. 
They saw the universe as a far more populated place with other types of creatures, angels, demons, monsters, gods, all created by and under the authority of Yahweh. Back then, people understood the world to be deeper and more spiritual than we do, with dimensions and invisible spaces and points of intersection between heaven and earth. That's why they saw gods in constellations and named planets after deities. We, on the other hand, are what philosophers would call materialists, without even knowing it. Even religious people like us generally operate on the assumption that the material world is all there is, and what you see is what you get. This is not a biblical view. There are other dimensions with creatures and realities inaccessible to us. The stars and the lights in the sky were symbols of that greater reality. What's interesting to me is that we the more we learn about our physical universe, the more we actually have to open ourselves up to the possibility that there is more to it than we think. What I mean is that our perception of reality is so shallow. For example, we perceive reality in four basic dimensions. Height, width, length, time. But many physicists and philosophers postulate that four dimensions are actually just not enough to account for what we know about reality. Some physicists say there could be as many as 10 different dimensions to reality that are completely inaccessible to us. I mean, we still can't identify most of the matter and energy in the universe. We know it's there, but we can't perceive it or see it, so we just call it this really technical thing. We call it dark matter. Dark energy. We know it's there, we can't see it. We're just so in the dark about the universe that we live in. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're wondering, what is Matt smoking this morning? (laughs) My point is that the universe is clearly bigger and more mysterious than we could possibly imagine. And the idea that there are beings existing in a reality beyond what we can perceive, beings somehow symbolized by the light, it's not crazy. I'm not smoking anything. I'm just reading my Bible. Although sometimes it feels like the same thing. What does it all mean, though? So Pumbaa is right that the stars are huge globes of burning gas. Simba is close to right that they are signs of a greater reality of living beings. If they're both right, what does it mean? What does it mean for us? Well, it means so much. First, it means we're not alone. God is a creator. God creates life. We just saw it. And of course, he would not just limit his creation to human beings. Of course, he would create other life forms whom he can work with and enjoy. I know that oftentimes it can feel that we're alone in this big, dark cosmos. But that's only because we aren't seeing all of what God created. We perceive four dimensions in a universe that has ten or more. 
Every now and then, though, the Bible pulls back the curtain. I mean, read some of the uh, apocalyptic books in the Bible, uh, like Ezekiel and, and Daniel and Revelation, and you will see just how bizarre and different the world is from what you thought. Creatures with eyeballs all over them and different types of heads, angels who are literally on fire. Maybe you know the story of Jacob's dream at Bethel, for example. So Jacob was uh, an Old Testament dude. He was alone in the wilderness, feeling forlorn and forgotten. He falls asleep, has a dream in which he sees a ramp, a staircase, on which angels are ascending and descending between heaven and earth. And the Lord of hosts is at the top of it, reassuring Jacob that he has never been alone, and he never will be. Jacob wakes up and says, Whoa, surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't even know it. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. As far as he could tell, it's just a rock in a desert. Is it possible that due to our materialistic worldview and generally busy lives, we're just unaware? of God's angelic presence all around us? Is it possible that the Lord and his servants are in this place? This place. And we just didn't know. Is it possible? If the lights are more than lights, that means we're not alone. Also, it means that we have help. God didn't just create the lights in the sky because they're pretty, even though they are. He created the host of heaven to assist him in ruling creation. You see, God creates life on purpose. And the purpose of the stars is to help him build and manage creation as a place where we can all someday live together in God's light. Angels are his servants that he uses to accomplish that. The book of Hebrews says, are not angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Repeatedly in scripture, angels appear, usually from and in the sky, to assist people at key moments, and, and sometimes they're not even aware of what's going on. There's a story in 2 Kings in the Old Testament that I've always loved, and it really illustrates this well. So the army of Israel was going to battle against uh, the nation of Aram, now, the Israelites were woefully outnumbered, and they were getting very nervous. Elisha the prophet was with Israel, and he was trying to assure them that they had help. He tells the army, he tells them this, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then the army, they do a quick head count. All right. Nope, not true. <laughs> I don't know if you're using new math or anything, Elisha. Not the case. Those who are with them are more than those who are with us. So Elisha prays, open their eyes, Lord, so they may see. Then the Lord opened their eyes, and they looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You might not see it, 
I might not see it with our four-dimensional brains, but those who are with us are more than those who are with them. As we live our lives for Jesus, as we do his work, as we lead our families, as we serve our coworkers, as we build this church here in St. Louis, we've got an invisible army of flaming chariots behind us. Let's go. Seriously, let's go. We have an army of invisible chariots behind us as we do the Lord's work. Let's go. After the service. <laughs> I got one more point. <laughs> then we'll go. <laughs> We're not alone. We have help. And relatedly, we're in a battle. One of the things it means uh, that the lights are not just lights is that we're in a battle. Some of you may have actually been anticipating this point, uh, but one of the reasons we can make this parallel between the stars and angelic beings is because the Bible actually describes a rebellion amongst the stars. Just like humanity has a moral downfall in the Garden of Eden, so do the angels in the sky. The serpent in the Garden of Eden might actually have been the first fallen star. The prophet Isaiah writes, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. And God promises to punish these fallen stars too. Also in Isaiah, he says, In that day, the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. They will be herded together like prisoners in a dungeon. They will be shut up in prison and punished after many days. The moon will be dismayed and the sun ashamed. When you read the Bible, you get the distinct impression that just like there's all kinds of conflict here on earth, there's all kinds of conflict in heaven between rebellious lights and lights faithful to God. We can't see it again. We're four-dimensional beings. <clears throat> but we get glimpses of it in Scripture. I mean, read the book of Daniel. Even Jesus fighting demons. What are demons but fallen stars? I don't mean to freak you out, but you and I are in the middle of a battle between invisible heavenly forces. What are they fighting over? Us. They're fighting over us. We're the prize. They're fighting over our affections, our attentions, our souls, our futures. We're the prize. We got to remember this. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, We got to remember this as he writes to the Ephesians For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. The governors, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil, where? In the heavenly realms. Basically, there's more going on between you and your mother-in-law than you think. There's more going on between Palestine and Israel than we think. 
There's more going on in your battle against depression than you think. We are in the middle of a war zone between the sun, the moon, and the stars, and our lives, and our minds, and our bodies, and our nations, and our churches are the battlefield. Now that's terrifying. We are in the battle of a spiritual war between angelic beings that we cannot see and it's taking place in our own hearts. That's terrifying. What do we do? (laughs) Do we have any hope? Do we participate? Can we even win this struggle? Is it a battle we can win? Yes, it is. It's a battle we can win if we live in the light. And this is what I want to leave you with. So I've been saying during the study uh, that one of the reasons we need to read the beginning of the Bible is because it helps to make sense of the end of the Bible. There's just so many parallels between the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. The book ends the way it begins, but differently. And this is true with respect to the lights. So in his vision of the end of the world in Revelation, the Apostle John sees something very interesting. He sees that in the new heavens, in the new earth, in the city of God, guess what? There are no lights in the sky. Did you know that? As John writes, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb of God is its lamp. The nations will walk by his light. And the new heavens and the new earth, we won't need the sun, the moon, and the stars because all of reality will be filled with God's radiant glory. So if you enjoy looking up at the stars, go outside and take it all in because they might not be there very long. In heaven, there will be no lights in the sky, but of course, we're not in heaven yet. Here on earth, we live in darkness. I mean, half of all our hours are spent in the night. And it's terrifying living in the darkness. I was talking with a friend this week trying to work through some of her struggles. And I recommended that she, you know, do something simple, like go on walks at the end of the day. And she said, you might not understand this, Matt, but I'm a woman, I can't walk at night where I live. That's the world we live in. A dark world of fear and violence in which we're never really sure what lurks in the dark. Even in that darkness, though, God gives us light. This is one of the purposes of the lamps in the sky, to light the earth. Let them be lights in the sky to give light on the earth. God hasn't eliminated the darkness yet. The world is still dark. Our families are still broken. Our governments are still dysfunctional. Our communities are still unsafe. God hasn't taken away the darkness, but he does give us light to see in it. The moon and the stars remind us this, that even in the darkness of a world, God gives us light. And how does God give us light? He gives us light through Jesus. Jesus is our light. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our salvation. It's like the prophet Isaiah says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
If you want a chance in the great battle between light and darkness as we wait for God to destroy the night, live in the light. Follow Jesus. Do what he tells you to do. Confess your sins. Be forgiven by him. Learn what he came here to teach. In our world of darkness, Jesus lights the way. He even says it. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. So who's right? Simba or Pumbaa? When we look up into the sky, what do we see? Balls of burning gas or divine entities beyond our ability to perceive? We see both. A physical world in which we live and breathe, but a spiritual world that we cannot see but is no less real. More than anything, though, when we look up into the night sky or the day sky and we see the sun and the moon and the stars, hopefully more than anything, we also see Jesus. In our very dark world, Jesus alone is the light we can follow to the new creation where there will only be light and life and love.